This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. My name is Owen Lynch, and uh, if I've not met you before, then um, hi, welcome to Seven. It's great to have you with us. And uh, if you're back from the summer, you're so welcome. We're so pleased to see you back. We hope you've had a great summer. Uh, at home, hi there. Uh, grab your coffee. We're going to settle down, just have a 15-minute talk now. And um, I wanted to talk to you about what's in a name. Now, my name is Owen Lynch, Owen Robert Lynch. And uh, Lynch has always been a kind of mixed feelings for me as a name because it's associated with uh, lynching or a lynch mob, isn't it? And I think that's what I always thought was the meaning of the name lynch until this week I decided to research it for you. And um, I was delighted to find out that actually um, my name Lynch is actually the anglicised version of the Irish name O'Loinzai. Now, that's cool, huh? Uh, now, um, as you know, uh, generally names are... Uh, certainly in English, are, are something to do with, uh, you know, your predecessors. So, you know, you might be, uh, you might have the surname Butler, and someone who is one of your um, ancestors may have been a butler. Um, uh, you may have a, a name that relates to a place, um, and that name might be that your one of your ancestors came from that place. And, and so... Um, when I looked up the name uh, Lynch, I realised that actually Lynch means son of a mariner or son of a sailor. Um, quite apart from uh, this idea of it being part of a lynch mob or being lynched. Now, the term lynch uh, is associated with uh, this idea of lynching, which is unlawful killings, because of a, a chap called Charles Lynch. And Charles Lynch uh, lived in a 1782. Um, he was a planter in Virginia, in the, um, what would have been then the colonies of the, of the United States. And... Um, uh, so say that he and some of his contemporaries um, tried to uh, put down a rebellion by a bunch of people who wanted to take over the local lead mines. Um, and uh, they set up uh, what would be not recognised as a court of law, uh, dispensed with arbitrary justice, and then uh, executed people by flogging them, hanging them, or whipping them. And uh, in 1782, uh, the then... Uh, regional governor Thomas Jefferson um, uh, they uh, basically allowed an amnesty to uh, Charles Lynch and his contemporaries um, uh, absolving them as of responsibility for these killings and uh, it was named Lynch Law uh, which is where the term Lynch comes from so Lynch Law is basically about uh, giving an amnesty to Charles, uh, to Charles Lynch and his contemporaries for these unlawful killings so that's where the word Lynch comes from and lynching obviously gained a notoriety in the United States and globally. But the name Lynch actually comes, means son of a mariner or son of a sailor. So that's quite nice, isn't it, for me to discover that because thus far I didn't realise that. I just thought I was named after someone who had a job as lynching people. So um, uh, a name can carry a lot of meaning. I wonder what your name means. I wonder what your first name means. I wonder why your first name... You, you, I wonder why you're named that. Um, or perhaps what is your surname? What's the link with that? Um, what I want to talk about this morning is that, um, is that sometimes people get confused with Jesus and they think that Jesus' surname was Christ. And the reality is, is that Jesus' surname wasn't Christ. Actually, Christ is a title. Jesus was better known. Um, he would have been named something like Jesus Nazareth because he's from Nazareth or Jesus Carpenter because that was his uh, occupation. But some people think that Christ is a surname. It's not. It's a title. And Christ actually is the Greek form 
of a word in Hebrew called Messiah, which means anointed. Now, um, within the year, we will witness King Charles III being anointed with oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And again, some fantastic research uh, has demonstrated this oil contains lots of different uh, spices and herbs, things like cinnamon and jasmine and musk and orange, and something called ambergris, which as well as being one of the most expensive perfumes in the world, is also known as whale vomit. So think of that when you see King Charles III anointed with oil. But anointing with oil is something that's been done uh, to kings and queens throughout human history. You go right back, right back three or 4,000 years, you'll, you'll find kings and queens anointed with oil. Why? Because oil was considered to be a symbol of divine power and authority. So when a king or queen is anointed with oil, we are saying that they are anointed with divine authority and power. Now, that might not be so um, resonant today, in today's culture in, in Britain, um, but certainly throughout human history, it was seen as something that was very important for a king or queen, because for a king or queen to be considered to be divine, upped their level of authority another notch. To cross a king or queen who was considered to be, have divine authority was a crime against not just the king or queen, but against the divine. So anointing is a very powerful symbol of uh, divine power and authority. In, fact, in, 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 a, in essence, calling Jesus the Christ is shorthand for saying this Jesus of Nazareth has divine power and authority. Now, I think it's really important for us to recognize, and if, you don't, if you're familiar with um, the accounts of Jesus' life, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you, you might be surprised to know this or note this, that actually the title Christ was applied to Jesus retrospectively. Uh, and we see this, for instance, in Acts, um, uh, written by Luke, Acts 2.36, where Peter, who's Jesus' sort of favorite, favorite apostle, if you like, he addresses the gathered crowd in Jerusalem um, during the festival of Pentecost. And this is what he says in Acts 2.36. So all the people of Israel should know this truly. God has made Jesus, the man you nailed to the cross, both Lord and Christ. Let me repeat that. So all the people of Israel should know this truly. God has made Jesus, the man you nailed to the cross, both Lord and Christ. Now let me say that would have been received by his Jewish audience, and it's pieces of Jew saying it but it would have been received by his Jewish audience as blasphemous. And an ensuing riot followed, okay, with lots of violence. Um, this small group of Jews, I mean, it, it started out as maybe 12 to 20 um, who were associated with Jesus, who'd been following Jesus for three years prior to his death. Soon became 3,000, we hear, from the book of Acts. But there was an incredible persecution um, unleashed upon them because they claimed that Jesus of Nazareth had divine authority and power. And, and that the, this, the, this uh, period of violence and persecution ripped this group of people apart and spread them all over the Eastern Mediterranean at that time. And one of the biggest perpetrators of this act of violence towards 
these people who claimed that Jesus was the Christ was a man called Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was the most zealous of Jews. Um, he would have considered this claim that Jesus was the Christ to be utter blasphemy. And, uh, and in Acts 3, sorry, in Acts 8.3, Saul uh, tries to destroy this movement of Jews. And it says in Acts 8.3 that he went from house to house, no doubt along with a coterie of, of acolytes, dragging these people off to prison. Later, this man Saul would have a metaphysical encounter with Christ Jesus himself that changed his whole life. And it's really hard to kind of for us to grasp this because it happened 2,000 years ago. But this man went from being the lead persecutor of these people who claimed that Jesus was the Christ to being the man who preeminently proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. He had the most incredible encounter with what he said was Christ Jesus. It would have been life-changing for him. From that moment on, this fiercely passionate Jew spent the rest of his life proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Now again, if you're really familiar with the accounts of Jesus' life, if you're familiar with the Christian tradition, just let this pause, just pause with this for a moment because it should shape our thinking. Paul believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the anointed one, was the Christ, was the one who was imbued with power and authority. And perhaps some of the Bible readings that you're most familiar with, I want you to reflect on them and listen to them again and see if you don't see it from a different perspective. This is what Paul writes about Jesus the Christ in Colossians 1, 15, 17. Christ Jesus, this is what he says, Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Listen to this description of Christ Jesus. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him Everything holds together. I've changed that word, all things to everything. Everything holds together. What a stunning statement to write about a human being. And just look at what he's saying. He's, he's alluding to, more, more than alluding, he's suggesting some cosmic nature to Christ Jesus. Everything, as far as he could imagine it, given his worldview, held together in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus was in all things. This is a stunning statement. Many scholars think that Jesus didn't claim to be the Christ, although I suspect that Jesus never doubted his union with God. In three of the four accounts of Jesus' life, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
His favorite description of himself, this is Jesus's, Jesus of Nazareth, his favorite description of himself was, I am just an everyman. I'm just an everyday Joe. I'm an everyday guy. I'm one of you. 87 times Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus as describing himself like that. Only in the last and the latest, that is the last, sort of the one that was produced most recently, and that, this is the account of his life uh, written by a person called John. Only in that account do we see John allowing Jesus to speak the words that I am God. And scholars think that the reason why he did that was because at the time that John was writing, the Caesars were being proclaimed as God. And if there was one protagonist and antagonist uh, that, 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 uh, pairing that stood out in that first hundred years uh, since Jesus was born, it is the, it is the uh, contrast between Jesus, Christ Jesus, and the Caesars. And those who wrote the accounts of Jesus' life, Paul the Apostle in his letters, frequently contrast Christ Jesus with the Caesars because the Caesars were proclaimed to be king. And, and, and scholars think that John did that because of that. But whatever the reason that John did that, this is how he opens his account. And notice how similar it is to Paul's account in Colossians. This is John 1, 1 to 5, and verse 14, thrown in for good measure. This is John writing about Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And you should understand, by that word, he means Christ Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Isn't that the most staggering description of a human being? If I was to, I don't know, grab any of you up here and, and, and recount that description and say, this is who this person is, you would laugh at me. But this is what John was writing. This is what Paul was writing. And this is what Peter was writing. And let me say, there's no more influential figures than Peter, John, and Paul in the history of the church. Somehow we've forgotten, or perhaps we've not emphasized, the incredible cosmic nature of Christ Jesus. We're not talking about a king here. We're talking about the divine. We're talking about the life force that holds the whole universe together the life force that creates. If you're a subatomic physicist, you'll understand perhaps some of the depth of what we're alluding to here. Christ is in all, not just at an individual human level, but at a subatomic level, at a quantum physics level, at an astrophysics level. 
Isn't it incredible the way in which Peter, Paul, and John speak about this Christ? Peter, Paul, and John made this astonishing leap of faith that the eternal Christ, the Word of God, the creator of the world, was speaking through this person called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter. So who was this Christ Jesus, the word that Peter, Paul, and John said that they witnessed when they saw the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth? Well, Paul and John both describe Jesus as the life force, the life force that holds the universe together, that creates the universe. Have you ever thought about Christ Jesus as the life force before? Both Paul and John described Christ Jesus as existing before anything was made. We can't get our heads around that, right? I don't think they could either. But they were saying before the universe, before the Big Bang, Christ existed. The resurrected Christ existed. John describes this Christ Jesus as the light that travels through the universe. We all know that we measure time in light years because light is a constant that physicists can use to determine distance. And John says, Christ Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Have you ever thought about Christ Jesus like this before? Peter, Paul, and John are saying that Christ Jesus is the life force of the universe. Everything seen and unseen. Think subatomic. Think quantum physics. Think astrophysics. Everything is suffused and inhabited by this life force that we know as Christ Jesus. And we're not talking some airy-fairy stuff here, some kind of hippie stuff that has just been spoken about recently. We're talking about Peter. We're talking about John. We're talking about Paul using these terms to describe this person they're calling Christ Jesus. It's phenomenal. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and is in all. Just think about that for a minute. What did he mean by that? Christ is all and is in all. He's referring directly there to all people. I wonder whether as Western Christians, and I could talk about this in more detail, and we will do in a podcast, but I wonder whether as Western Christians we've limited the divine presence of Christ Jesus to the single body of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Peter, Paul, and John didn't do that. Perhaps we, in our generation, and perhaps we here, have limited the divine presence of Christ Jesus to just times when we gather together like this and sing songs and we sense the presence of Jesus. Maybe we've just limited it to that. One of my deep joys when I was on sabbatical, when I wasn't meeting like this with you guys, was that I discovered Christ Jesus in almost everything that I was seeing and doing. It was impossible to not be in the presence of Jesus. And I'll talk more about that, and indeed I've talked about that recently in some talks on my podcast, so you can listen to that if you want to. Don't you know, there are times when you've experienced the presence of Christ Jesus. Perhaps when you've been 
she had an intimate moment with someone and you're gazing into their eyes, into the, deep into their eyes and you see into their soul and you know I'm using figurative language there but you know what I mean right? Don't you know you've seen Christ Jesus in someone else? Don't you know you've seen the incredible precious life of another person and witnessed Christ Jesus in them? Don't you know when you gaze perhaps at a beautiful landscape or you look at the intricate detail of, the, of a leaf or a flower or you look at the intricate detail of an animal or maybe you gaze into the sunset and we have some beautiful sunsets haven't we? Or maybe when you gaze at the stars in the sky and you're alone and you experience the presence of Christ Jesus. How many of you know that you're experiencing the presence of Christ Jesus in those times? And yet, because of your Christian heritage, you find it hard to put that together. Well, let me say to you, the reason you find that hard to put together is not because of Peter, John, and Paul. It's not. You just have to go back and read those scriptures again with fresh eyes. Remove yourself from years of Christian tradition that perhaps have just located the Christ Jesus just in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul says, as, he, as Claire's going to lead us in in a moment, uh, in a contemplation, when Paul says, um, let me pull this up. When he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him everything holds together. Paul was grappling with the same challenge that we have. How does this work? How does Jesus of Nazareth be the person who was created, uh, who, who created all things? In him, all things hold together. How could he say that about Christ Jesus? How could he say that? G.K. Chesterton, the famous author once wrote, your religion is not the church you belong to. And just to say, that, that is not to diss what we do as church. And again, listen to my previous talks in the last few weeks. There are like loads of amazing reasons why we do church, okay? Loads of them. And we could, if we brainstormed it now, we'd come up with a long list of why we do church. But G.K. Chesterton said, your religion is not the church you belong to, but the cosmos you live in. And Richard Rohr wrote this, a uh, famous uh, author and theologian. He, he said, once we know that the entire physical world around us, all of creation, is both the hiding place and the revelation place for God. This world becomes home. It becomes safe. It becomes enchanted, offering grace to any who look deeply. I call that kind of deep and calm seeing contemplation. And he goes on to say that a cosmic notion of the Christ competes with and excludes no one, but it includes everyone and everything and allows Christ to be the God figure worthy of the entire universe. Wow. What's in the name? What's in the name, Christ? Have we taken that word for granted for too long? Should we rethink it? Claire's going to help us rethink it now by leading us in a contemplation of one, Colossians 1. Brilliant. So yeah, just going to take a few moments just before we end, just to dwell on this and just to give a bit of space 
and to invite God just to um, allow the truth of who he is to imprint on our inner being. This is about it going from our head and allowing by his spirit to go to our heart. Um, so we're going to um, soak in these words from, what, from Colossians. And um, this style of reading is an ancient monastic tradition called Lectio Divina. And the goal is to slowly read the words and to soak on them and to connect internally with the deeper meaning beneath the words and be attentive to what God is wanting to reveal to us in this moment. Okay, so I'm going to read the words first of all. And um, they will appear on the screen or you've if you're in the room, you've got them on paper if you'd like that. Then I'm going to invite you to read the words yourself quietly and I'm going to suggest a few things to consider and then we'll read it all again together at the end. Okay, so let's just, I'm just going to pray. God of the whole universe, thank you that you are here in this room with us right now. Thank you that you are revealing yourself to us. And in these moments, would you just imprint who you are on our inner being? The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So just take a moment just to read those words again for yourself. Don't rush, just pause and ponder and see what grabs your attention. Where does it stir you? And I want you to just to pick one word or phrase and then we'll focus on that. But I'll give you a couple of minutes just to do that and just to pick one word or phrase.
Okay, so take that one word or phrase that has caught your attention. What comes up for you with this? What emotions, feelings, thoughts, thoughts rise up? What thoughts does that phrase or word initiate for you? And just go with that. Let your thoughts and feelings just flow and begin to chat to God about that. It may bring up something positive or it might bring up something that's confusing or unsettling. But whatever it is, try to go with that and just chat with God about it and take this moment to be real with him. of this, in light of what you've shown me, what do you want me to know? And again, just see what he says and just chat with him about this. So God, in light of this, what do you want me to know? rest in what he's shown you and just take this time just to thank him for that and as you rest in that we're just going to read those verses together one final time you want to read it out loud with me the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible 
and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. <laughs>